you have your Bibles, you can open them to the book of Nehemiah. I want to talk about the aftervision effect. The aftervision effect. Let's start right there in verse 1. We'll read a few verses here. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and I also, and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the providence are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Would you put your hand right there on your Bible, Lord? We just take one more moment to pause and ask for your Holy Spirit to come and speak to us if you cannot speak through me. God, I pray you speak around me, but come Holy Spirit and share with us today. In Jesus' name, the strong Son of God. Amen. That Allen, a U.S. Coast Guard admiral, was standing in his living room watching as anger began to just stir inside of him as the news portrayed the horrible after effects of Hurricane Katrina. And he, and he stood there and as he grew more angry, he began to question, well, why, why isn't someone there taking charge? Where's the face of leadership? Where's, why, isn't, why isn't there a leader there standing in front of the Superdome and, 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 and giving some stability and giving some direction and, and being the, the face of, of leadership? Why isn't that face on the news? And he, be, he got so angry, he started questioning his, his, uh, the, the people above him, his commanders and why isn't anyone there? What's going on? Why isn't something being done? Of course, the next week he found his way on, in a helicopter going down to New Orleans. And his orders were simple. Go to New Orleans, figure out what's going on, stabilize the situation. And as his helicopter flew over the state and the devastation, and as he began to meet with the people on the ground and what local government, the state government was left... He started getting all these reports and he was just bombarded. There was just such ruin and destruction and confusion on how, how to move from, from A to B and how to, how to move on from this and how to get something started. The morale was, was just terrible and, and, and low. And he, the, he walks into an, uh, a complex, a four-story complex that they've commandeered and there's some 4,000 staff and directors and government officials and you know, military officials, people who are supposed to be figuring out how to help people and save people and, and get things, to get some order to this. And with all the, the bombardment of all of this, is, he remembers his aide standing next to him as he walked into the building. What are you going to do first? He said, I want to get everybody together. I want an all-hands meeting. 
They said there's 4,000 people in here. We don't, we don't have anywhere to put 4,000 people. They found space to, to literally cram 2,500 people in a space and the rest were just flooded all around. The admiral gets up on a table and he takes a, a megaphone and he looks around and he sees their faces. They're depleted. They're tired. They're distraught. They're confused. They're dragging. And he gets everybody's attention. He tells everybody who he is. He tells them that he's now in command. And he says, I've got an order. And this is what he says. This is what I want you to do. And he looks them in the eye and he says, everybody listen to me. This is an order. You are to treat everybody that you come in contact with that's been impacted by this storm as if it were a member of your own family. That's what I want you to do. That's an order. He said, if you'll do that, if you'll do that, then two things will happen. Number one, if you make a mistake, we're going to err on the side of doing too much. And he said, number two, if anybody has a problem with what you did, their problem is with me and not with you. Those in the room said it was like a collective sigh of relief. Some people began to cry and weep because finally someone had stood up and told them what was to be expected. Somebody finally stood up and, and said, this is, this is what we're going to do. This is what's important. Now, let me give you a little vision of how I want you to do your jobs. And after that, things started clicking. Nobody had told the group what was important in all of that chaos. He later explained, what stirred you that day standing in your living room? You know, why did you say yes when they said, okay, you got a problem with how we're handling this? You want to go to New Orleans? It could be your mess. And Admiral Allen remembers his wife even questioning him. And his response to his wife, she testifies, is, if not me, then who? And if not now, when? And then he got on a helicopter. Nehemiah had never seen Jerusalem. He'd never even been there. Never entered his gates. Never worshipped in his temple. He was born in captivity. He's a servant in the house of Artaxerxes, who happens to be the stepson of Queen Esther. And his brother comes into town and gives a report about this city that he and his people have talked about for a long time. Jerusalem is very sacred and the heart of all Hebrews, all Israelites. And he hears about how it's destroyed and then ruins and, and then something begins to stir Inside of Nehemiah, something begins to happen on the inside of him that just, it was more than just a reaction. And all of a sudden he started getting this great vision, some purpose for a vision for a city that he's never been to. But it wasn't just about rebuilding some walls. It wasn't just about rebuilding some gates that he's never seen. It, it was more than that. It was it was a vision about seeing a people rebuilt, a people renewed, a people restored. 
somebody needed to get up on a desk in a crowded room with a megaphone and said, Hey guys, let's put some legs to this vision. Let's do something. And I can't help but think that maybe, maybe Nehemiah kind of felt something like Admiral Allen. As he began to get this stirring, I can't help but think that maybe he started to think, if not me, then who? And if not now, then when? And so you, you start to get this stirring, you start to, you know, you start getting some, some vision. But what comes next? What's this after vision effect that tends to happen? Because I don't know about you, but I have a lot of great ideas that I get started on. And I still got that exercise bike sitting in the garage. We tend to start well. How do we, how do we keep it going? And that's why I want to talk about the after vision effect. <clears throat> and Nehemiah is going to teach us some lessons. And many of you have some great vision for your own personal life. Personal things you'd like to see happen in your family and your jobs and your schools and your neighborhoods. So what's next? What's the after vision? The first effect is always the first effect. You're going to be shocked. Get ready for some great revelation right here. You better have a pen and a piece of paper because this is going to blow you away. But the first effect is always the first effect. You need to pray. Listen to me. If prayer is what brought the vision, it's going to take prayer to see it realized. I think a lot of times we get, we spend a great deal of time in prayer receiving a good vision and then we stop with the praying. And we get busy with trying. Try first in prayer. If prayer is what brought these ideas and this vision and dreams into your heart and mind, it's going to take prayer to see it realized. And as you read throughout the whole book of Nehemiah, don't do it this morning... But take some time over the next few weeks and read the book of Nehemiah. And as you begin to read it, you'll see there's just time and time again where Nehemiah just stops and prays. I mean, he just stops. He's in the middle of doing something and he just stops and prays. Something else happens and he just stops and prays. The whole book starts there in chapter one with Nehemiah praying. And if you go to the last chapter of the book, it's right there. Nehemiah is praying. What he began in prayer, he ended in prayer. And I want to make special note of a a couple of types of prayers that he employed throughout this process. Because see, first there was this season of prayer. There was a season of prayer. We know right off the bat, Nehemiah prayed for three months. Three months he took this stirring to God in prayer, in fasting, seeking the Lord. This vision that he was catching, this drive he was getting, it wasn't just reactionary and it didn't, it didn't just dissipate. Man, the more he prayed on it, the more stirred up he got. You want to test whether or not God's speaking to you? Keep praying about it. Either it's going to keep stirring on the inside of you or God may uh, say, well, no, that was, you had a little bit too much pizza last night. Let's settle down a little bit. Do a little course correction. But see, if you take it back to God in prayer and spend some seasons of prayer, especially with major decisions in your life, I think you'll find that the stirring would just increase like it did with Nehemiah. It wasn't just 
pleading, you heard phrases like, you know, taking something and bathing it in prayer. That's what I'm talking about here. You just pray about it, pray about it, pray about it some more. It wasn't just a reaction to terrible news that he received that spurred him on. It was time in prayer and solitude that brought about the courage to act. It wasn't emotional. It was inspired. It was inspirited. That's the difference. God was working on him. God wants to work on us. We should be the same way when facing fresh vision for our church and for our lives. And so when you're faced with things in your life, we need to pray. You should be here. I don't know about you, but you know how somebody's talking to you and they want you to do something or volunteer for something or help with something. And maybe you've pulled this one out of the, the hat once or twice. Someone, you know, you've heard it. Someone's done it to you and you're, you're giving them the lowdown on some type of project you want them to help you with. And, and they go, well, uh, I'll pray on that. Yeah, we all know what that means, right? That means I know I'm too nice to say no. So I'm going to pray on that. But that's church lingo for no. I don't think so. You know, and what's sad is, is that the truth is we do need to pray on it. That really should be a part of our everyday life as Christ followers. It shouldn't mean, nah, that's not going to happen. Just stop saying it. Just start saying no. And when you say I'll pray on it, mean it. Because the phrase shouldn't be a cliche. It should be a way of life. And so Nehemiah has this great time, a season of prayer. But the other thing that's so great about Nehemiah is that he had this, he had a, a way of doing these spontaneous prayers. As a matter of fact, it's, it's probably right there at the very beginning of the book. We read about one of, uh, Probably the most uh, great displays of spontaneous praying that we have recorded in the the Bible. Because he's standing before the king and he's a cupbearer. And so he's there in the presence of the king. And the king notices something's wrong with Nehemiah. And so he asks Nehemiah what's wrong. And Nehemiah is about to spill his guts and tell him about all the stirring that God was doing in his heart. And right before he does, he prays a quick prayer. And then he talks to the king. And all throughout the book, you see these times where you can tell it's just kind of spontaneous. It's just instantaneous. You know, a moment of opportunity comes about, and so he gives this quick, spontaneous prayer. And I, I think what I want to tell you today is that there is, there is credibility in your spontaneous prayers. There is credibility. That, that's a real prayer. So don't abuse it. Some of the most powerful prayers you can ever pray is help. Help. Help me. Just in that moment, that moment where you need it. God hears that. And we know in Scripture that God also honors that. He can work with that. Spontaneous praying is important. Utilize it. Utilize it. God hears it. It's credible. It's okay to pray spontaneously. You don't have to. If the only time you pray is if 
you know, you've got to go through this ceremonial thing where you've got to be in a church or you've got to be in a closed room with the praise CD going, you're missing out on a, a whole lot of God intervention in your life. Because you know what? We don't live life in our prayer closets. We live life out in the world. Now, you need your prayer closet time, but when you're out there, it's okay to pray those spontaneous prayers too. God, I need you. God, help me. Oh, here's an opportunity to witness. And this one you go, uh, let me get a, a, a let me grab my, my uh, coffee. Oh, dear God, help me witness to this person. I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what I'm going to do. But Lord, just give me the words. And then, now don't let them hear you say it. <laughs> that may work against you. But spontaneous prayer, there's credibility there. And so let me remind you, a vision, a purpose that God gives you, if it came to you in prayer, it can only be sustained in prayer. It can only be realized through prayer. And so are you praying in your vision? The second thing is, is you got to take action. God doesn't just call the prepared. He prepares the call. Nehemiah was just a cupbearer. Wasn't anybody special, didn't have great wealth, didn't have hardly anything. But... In this moment where he approaches the king and he tells him what the stirring that's on his heart to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city, rebuild its walls. The king goes, hmm. And then look what happens. If you read it, the king says, okay, I'll pay for your travel expenses. The king says, "Um, I'll provide a security detail for you. The king says, I will provide for you all the building supplies that you need. And I'll provide you with a private residence. Because you're not going to be working for me anymore, so you can't, work, you can't live here. So I'll give you your own house. Now, can you imagine what would have happened if Nehemiah said, well, wait a minute, because this is the American way of thinking. Uh, wait a minute, first, got to figure out how am I going to do this? Because, you know, technically, if I tell the king this, I'm quitting my job. So how am I going to get there? How am I going to get over to Jerusalem? I don't even know how to get there. You know, and how am I going to get there safely? And I, how's all, I got to, I got to work out my travel arrangements. And then what are we going to do? What am I going to build it up with? I don't own anything. I don't have any, you know, stone or wood. I don't have any of that. So I got to, I got to find somebody that's going to give us all this stuff or how we're going to earn all this stuff. And where am I going to live? Because they're going, they're going to kick me out of the palace. So I can't stay here anymore. And if he had waited till he answered all those questions, He probably would have missed the moment of God. But because he stepped out, see, we get it backwards. We think it's ready, set, go. But with God, it's go, set, ready. You just step out. And he stepped out and God provided. Because he had an assignment. He had something he needed to act on. There was something he needed to do. You know, one of my favorite chapters out of the whole book, and you probably think I'm crazy, but if you look at it, it's in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is fun because it's just a list of all the families and who did what. And so on the surface, it seems kind of boring. Like, okay, that that gets you all excited, JP. You know, It's like reading Lamentations, okay. But I like it because I think it's pretty cool that everybody had, an, once Nehemiah got there, everybody had a part to play. Everybody had something to do. Everybody had an assignment. Everybody that believed in this vision had something to do. And when you go down, you read about this family, you know, over here. They got the the sheep gate. All right? So, they got the sheep gate over here. And this family over here, 
They got the tower. You know? And it's kind of cool because their names, you know, the Grams, you got the sheep gate. You know, the Cusicks, you, you've got the fish gate. You like the fish, don't you? Well, I hope so. You got the fish gate. You know? And the, you know, the slides, you got the valley gate. You know? And, you know, you over here, hey, the lairs, you got the fountain gate. But I have a feeling that if I were living in this time, the Vicks, we would have got the dung gate. Now, I want, to, I want to park here for a second, because that's my favorite verse. Somebody had to do the hard job. And you know, not all assignments are created equal. I'm sorry. Somebody's got to be willing to get their hands dirty. Somebody's got to do the stinky gate. Somebody's got to be willing. I don't know how Nehemiah headed out the assignments, but I can only imagine if they were all crowded around <laughs> and they were doing it by volunteers and you're all standing up here and I'm saying, all right, who wants to get the Mayflower gate, you know? Who wants to get the, the, the Disney gate, you know? Uh, who wants to get the Dung gate? I don't think we would have had a lot of people say, ooh, I want that one. Somebody had to do it. You know, not all assignments are created equal. I don't, I don't, maybe God is calling you to do something that requires you to get your hands dirty. Because, if not you, then who? And if not now, then when? You know, there's just such synergy as you read chapter 3 and you see all these people just coming together, working together. I haven't even talked about Ezra. Ezra is the book right before Nehemiah. Ezra was the, the priest. He was kind of the spiritual director. He was trying to, to stir them back up spiritually and bring revival to the people. And, and he'd been there for about a decade, a little over a decade. And Nehemiah shows up. And you would think that maybe there'd be a little power struggle there or... Or, or maybe, oh, someone's stepping on my, you know, Nehemiah's stepping on Ezra's toes. But what you see is this collaboration where they start working together. And then they get everybody else employed and working together. Because one plus one is greater than two when you've got unity and vision. And all of a sudden they started accomplishing some stuff. So much so that when it was all said and done, even their enemies said, there's no way they could have done this without their God's help. Even their enemies were like, they couldn't have done this on their own. Their God must be real. Their God must have helped them. So what's your assignment? What are you supposed to be acting on? What are you praying? Where are you taking action? And lastly, where are you, where are you focusing? What is your focus? Because the thrill of the moment will pass. The thrill of the moment will pass. But we gotta stay focused. Nehemiah had a lot of opportunities to get distracted. But this guy was tenacious. I mean, I love this guy. I, mean, I don't know if I would want to, work, want to work for him. Because this guy, you look in chapter 4, verse 17, he was so determined not to get slowed up or delayed that when they got reports that they were going to be attacked, it says that they began working with a weapon in one hand and like their shovel in the other. Now that's tenacious right there. It says later in, 20, in the same chapter in verse 22, how 
No one was allowed to leave the city that was working on the walls and gates. They had to stay there and sleep there at night to protect it. You got to be, you get a vision, you get a stirring from God. You got to stay focused, even when some distractions may come your way. You got to be willing to work that vision and even protect it if you have to, defend it if you have to. They were unstoppable. Nothing was stopping them. Arwen McManus gives this great illustration in one of his books. I like it. Think about it like this. There are all different types of groups of animals, right? And they all have different names for uh, what you call them when they're in a group. Okay, for instance, like a group of cows is called a, a herd. And so a group of lions are called a, a pride. A group of crows are called a, a murder. That's kind of creepy. Do you know that? A group of crows are called a murder. Uh, you know what a group of buzzards are called? A committee. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Think about that next time you're asked to serve on a committee. Group of buzzers are a committee. What are a group of flamingos called? A flamboyance. Look it up. And if I'm wrong, don't tell me. It's embarrassing. But I'm pretty sure. <laughs> if McManus says it is, then it is. No, I've heard that before. This is the one I really want you to pay attention to. What are, do you know what a group of rhinos are called? Don't say it. A group of rhinos. Now think about this. If you know the answers, just hold on. But rhinos. Think about a rhino. Rhino. Big. You know, uh, husky. <laughs> That's a nice way of saying fat. Um, ugly, thick skin, rough. And I don't know if you know this, but did you know that rhinos can run 30 miles per hour? They can run 30 miles per hour. That's a whole lot of stuff Going pretty fast. And you, and, but you know what their weakness is? They can only see about 30 feet in front of them. So you want to know what a, a herd, a group of rhinos are called? They're called a crash. <laughs> it makes sense, you know? They're called a crash of rhinos. And you know, I like to think that that's what the church should be. We should be a crash. We should be a crash of rhinos. I'm not saying you should be big, fat, and ugly. That's not what I'm saying. I'm I'm saying that we should be this unstoppable force that goes after whatever it is God says to go after so fast. So so what? We can only see 30 feet in front of us. Because you want to know what? If you're a crash... It doesn't matter what 30, what's 31 feet in front of you. They're going to get out of the way. You're, you're going to keep going. And you know, I like to think that's what the enemy sees when he sees a united church going after something together. He sees a crash. And he's going to get out of the way when he sees you coming. And so we can only, so we can only see 30 feet. God normally only gives us about 30 feet. He doesn't tell us everything. And we just have to trust and believe at 31, they're going to get out of the way. Now, I like to think well, that's who I'm running with, 
a bunch of prayed up, unstoppable, focused, called, spirit-filled, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving folks that just want more of God in their lives and they want to share it with as many people as they can. And that's what I see with Nehemiah and his crew. They were literally unstoppable. Nothing that the enemy threw at them would slow them down. And that's what you are. Find a partner and run. Find a small group, a community group, and run. Find a church and run. Get some vision with your family and run. Stay focused. You're unstoppable. Because if not you, then who? And if not now, then when? Who built those walls, by the way? Who built those walls? Was it Nehemiah? Was it Ezra? Was it the people? Was it God? Everybody took a step back and said, only God could have done this. You know, there's always... I have experienced this in my own life. There is always more happening in the moment of God than what we see. There's always like multiple things happening. And it may be years down the road before we ever see the complete story of what God was doing in a particular moment, a particular decision where you stepped out in faith. That's what Nehemiah did. The story was bigger than building a wall. The story was bigger than building some gates. It was bigger than building a city. This was a story about God's promise, about God's love, and about God's faithfulness. That's what it was about. How do you know that, JP? Because right there at the very beginning, in chapter 5, we read it. See, Nehemiah began with the end in mind. It was God's covenant of love. That stirred Nehemiah from the beginning. It was right there. God's promise of love. God's promise of faithfulness. God's promise to be there. It was right there. Nehemiah confessed it in in chapter 1 verse 5. And you know when he said it again? He said it again. You want to know when it was? In chapter 9. After the walls were built and the city was restored. The Bible says that the the whole nation state came out. All the Israel. Everybody came out. And they had this big celebration. And really it was a a time of commitment and covenant. Where they brought back out the law and they read it. And and the people rejoiced. and, and And the leaders all put their seal on a covenant saying we're going to do our best to obey God. In the middle of all of that, there was this prayer. There's this one line where it says, Now therefore our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love. See, that which God purposed in your heart, He is faithful to see it through. Nehemiah began believing that God's love would carry him through. And when he saw it done, they confessed it again. This was done because of a great God who keeps His covenant of love. Nehemiah didn't believe that God would honor His promises when it was all said and done. He believed it when it was nothing more than just a stirring. It's just something in here. It's just an idea. It's just a thought. That's when he began to believe God's promises. Not when the walls were up. He believed it when the walls were down. God keeps his promises.
He doesn't give you a vision personally or give this church a vision, a vision for your family. He doesn't do it just to see a struggle and until we figure something else out. He does it because he wants us to pray and to act on it and to stay focused. So when it's all said and done, we can look back and see God was faithful to see it done. You're literally sitting in a house that declares the faithfulness of God. Not man. His promises are true for your life, for this church, for your family. So I want you to be encouraged today because maybe this this is the kind of word you needed to kind of motivate you to pray like you've never prayed and to act and to take steps of faith like you've never taken and to stay focused even when it gets a little difficult. Why? Because God is faithful. He is faithful. He'll never leave you, never leave you alone. He's not going to drop you if you make a mistake. He's not going to put you on the back burner. He's not going to withdraw from you. He's not like man. Where you, we go through spats and we withdraw and then we get back together. and we, God's not like that. He's, the Bible says he sticks closer than a brother. And he's always going to keep his promise of love over you and your life. So pray. Pray it in. Pray it into reality. Take some action. Take some steps. Do something. Stay focused and believe. Believe now before you see a thing change. And watch what God builds. Because if not now, then when? And if not you, then who? Would you bow your heads all across this room?